Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is Challenging Leadership with me, Stephen Mather, and... And I'm Jared Scott. Excellent. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, we're using a slightly different bit of software today, so it'll look a little bit different. Hopefully, it'll look and sound better, um, because we're very keen to, to have it look and sound as good as possible. Um, and in a way, that might be kind of a very tortured uh, segue into our topic because <laughs> we're going to talk yes. about making mistakes aren't we uh, we sure Jared? are yeah okay so uh, where are we going to go with this um well you know i was i was thinking about uh you know what we want to avoid uh talking about ourselves but i'm i thought let's kick off by talking about how i've made a lot of mistakes in leadership um confession is good for the soul it is it is i figure maybe everybody will forget about my mistakes by the end of this session (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) um you know i think the one the one thing that um i've struggled with is is uh proper communication um you know when you're very close to something like i've got this sheet of paper you can't read what's on here i can see it and um I'm, i'm like i can see the whole picture of what i want to accomplish what i want to do and then there's some assumptions where I just I skip over the details with my team or anybody involved. And I just assume they understand, you know, and um, I think that comes from perhaps not just assumptions, but feeling like I'm just such a wonderful, great communicator. That <laughs> how would anybody not understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that could be part of pride or just thinking you really did dot every I cross every T. And it's really not the case. So. Uh, I think assuming that you got your point across as far as the direction you gave is where the trouble begins. That's and, really interesting. Uh, not, not asking, um, I think, viewpoint questions. Because, you know, if I said, hey, do you understand Do you understand what I just said? I mean, that's almost like what mom and dad used to do. And it's a little demeaning. And no one wants to feel dumb. So they just say, yep, I understand. Yeah, who wants to tell your boss? Me. Yeah, who wants yeah. to tell your boss? I don't understand. I'm yeah. dumb, you know, because they're not saying that, but it's implied. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've uh, I definitely think that um, I've seen some mistakes that I've made when it comes to not communicating properly, effectively. Maybe is the better term. Yeah, I think that's a really common one. I mean, every every business I've worked in, um, it's always stated as one of the biggest problems of this place is they don't communicate properly, you know, and how, how could we improve it? Well, communicate better, but it's, wow. it's a very tricky one. You know, it's um, it clearly it is, it is difficult to do because every organization seems to struggle with it. Um, and I, I guess it's partly because we're trying to filter out some of the stuff we don't think is relevant and we don't want to over, um, burden everybody with everything but yeah it's it's I guess it's about putting ourselves in the other person's shoes really that's the that's the key to it isn't it as yeah. you say when we've got all the information there it, it suddenly it's become knowledge in the world and we are the world as far as we're concerned therefore right. it's now known you know <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah well, as we're as we're doing the confession bit I suppose I've I've written down some of my uh, my mistakes as well i think um my biggest one um in leadership has has tended to be um taking everything too seriously and and by that i mean linking my own sense of personal value um to the project i'm doing at the moment or whatever it is i'm doing the job if i'm doing a project it's that um and I think it's good. I'm naturally a, a very conscientious person in the psychometrics. I always score high on conscientiousness, you know, yeah. um, which in some respects is good because obviously it's the sort of thing that managers like about you. It's that, you know, you care about what you're doing. And of course, that's a good thing. But the downside is it can become um, too much and it becomes such that the fear of getting it wrong, making a mistake or just not being able to drive it in the direction you want it to go, you just become so frustrated or confused or anxious, I suppose is the real word, that it gets in the way of actually uh, doing the project properly. So I think that's that's been something that I've really had to work on over the years and put everything into a sense of perspective. And it's a tricky one as a yes. coach 
um, to get that right with others because you want people to care, of course. But on the other hand, you don't want them to be paralyzed by fear or anxiety or make it so that they're living a miserable life because they're trying to to perform. And, and of course, a lot of what you do is is dependent on other people. And that's where some of the frustration comes, I think. So for me, that's been my big learning curve. That's the thing that I've had to, to change. I feel like I've, I've got it much better now. I'm not as anxious now when I'm doing a project. I realize that, you know, some things are outside my control. I do what I can. I know I have the, the skills to do it. But if things happen that are outside of my control, well, I can't control that. I can only respond in, in the best way I possibly can. So that's for me, that's where I've, I've sort of fallen down. I think. Ah, yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it made me think about the, um, the, the other thing that I struggle with is, is uh, failure to delegate. I, um, and, and it's like, I'm a perfectionist and um, I was reading a book called the lazy CEO. This was uh, a few months back. And one of the key points that stood out to me was he was saying that if you if you can have somebody do it eighty percent as good as what you would be able to do, then have them do it. Yeah, you know you can't have the same expectations for how you accomplish things uh, as far as expecting other people to reach that level. And um, he says otherwise you're going to burn yourself out. And what happens is is you get burned out, and then it also it holds back your team, it holds back your department, it holds back others from accomplishing great things and also from them, they themselves getting better. I'm like, somebody had to let me have the freedom, Stephen, to, to become better at what I do. If they, if they micromanage me or kept me in check, I wouldn't be where I'm at today, you know? So I'm like, well, I need to give that to other people as well. And uh, yeah, delegating um, it, it's, uh, it's hard to do sometimes, <laughs> but, but goodness, it takes a load off of your plate when you can, when you can allow other people to make it their own you know, let them have ownership. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we, we, we need to do a, a full episode on delegation, don't we? It's such an yeah, important uh, so, yes. topic. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, in my courses, I often ask people, why, why is it we sometimes find it difficult to delegate? And it's obvious, you know, the answers are um, fear of losing control of it. Um, you know, if they get it wrong, it's, it's my neck on the line. You know, all these things are completely understandable. Um, but again, it, it probably stems from the same problem that I've just mentioned about myself, which is this anxiety that we want mm -hmm. to get everything completely right all yeah. the time. And, um, you know, that's that's an unrealistic expectation, I think. So, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so I've got a couple of case studies and, and I know there's a few more things we want to talk about when it yeah, comes to sure. making mistakes. So maybe I'll throw a couple of case studies out there. Let's do it. And, and we can talk about some of the things that, um, that that maybe we can learn from that. So we're featuring mistakes and things that went wrong. Um, and obviously, things go wrong all the time. The only time we get to know about it in the wider public, wider world, is when it's really bad consequences. So, you know, that's the only time we really get to find out. But, of course, mistakes happen all the time and, you know, bad things happen all the time. The what? first one that I wanted to, to talk about is one that I don't know whether you've heard of probably not because it's quite uk based although they did have a thousand stores in the us and this is a, a jewelers um around the 1990s called ratners mm -hmm. so i don't know have you heard of that at all jared uh, it, it it uh it strikes a little bit of a memory yes right, i remember okay. we had a few of those in some of the malls in the area yep yep so um they it was a, a kind of um I remember growing up and Ratner's was on the high street um, sort of budget uh, jewelry. So it was quite cheap um, and it was very popular around the time of the recession, um, the nineties recession. Um, and it was, it was sort of, you know, cheap and cheerful. So, you know, for me as a young guy, um, I might buy a pendant for my girlfriend or uh, some earrings for my mum or something. You know, mm. it was that sort of shop where you'd you'd buy something fairly cheap. Um, the guy that owned the, the store, was his name was Gerald Ratner, um, and he, he turned his business around. You know, he actually inherited it from his dad, but um, he just made it into something it never was. It was always a bit of a stuffy uh, jewellers, and, and he turned it into something dynamic and where people wanted to, to go and shop you know um 
And on April the 23rd, 1991, he stood up um, in the Albert Hall in London. So it's a big venue. This is a director's lunch sort of thing. And he was the guest speaker. 6,000 other directors and uh, the great and the good. And he did a speech about his stores and what he'd done. And, and you can actually listen to the speech. It's really worth listening to. I'll put the link on the show notes. Um, and obviously in, in speeches, you, you sometimes want to be a bit funny, a bit humorous. I mean, we talked about this on the charismatic episode. Um, and so he, he talked about where his stores were positioned and you need to listen to it all because it kind of, it all flows. But um, yeah. one of the things he said, he said, well, we do this, um, we don't just do jewellery. We do this cut glass sherry decanter complete with six glasses on a silver plated tray. And he said, it's the sort that your butler might serve your drinks on. He said with a, a sort of wry smile. And we can do that all for £4.95. Hmm. So just to give you some idea, sort of, I don't know, these days, you're probably talking about £20, I should think, something like yeah. that on today's uh, currency. So um, he said, we can do it for £4.95. And um, he then said, people say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? And I tell them, well, because it's a load of crap. Hmm. Uh, and everybody <laughs>, laughs, obviously, because it's a joke. It's a funny joke. Yeah. Um, and then he talks a bit more and he, he then talks about, um, he said, we also sell a pair of earrings for, a, for under a pound for 99 pence. Um, he said, which is cheaper than a, a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencer's, which is like a food shop. Wow. Um, he said, but it probably won't last as long as a ham, as a prawn sandwich. Um, again, <laughs> laugh, you know. wow. And so he goes out of that, um, of that speech, um, Everybody's enjoyed it. You know, it's been quite good. Anyway, it gets reported in the local press or in the national press, actually, what he said. And, of course, his whole world comes crashing down. Mm. Um, and, I mean, it's it's absolute. I think it is the biggest. If you, ca- if you don't count things like, you know, financial crashes, if you're just talking about a kind of simple mistake costing you your business, essentially that's that's what happened um he talks about it um uh, you can see some interviews again I'll, I'll put a link to an interesting interview that he he talks about this but he the share price went from something like four pound odd um a share to two pence Oof. a share um basically it just he just lost it all within a few hours mm-hmm. he ended up having to um step down from the board um and he lost his job. He lost his house. Um, he had to take his kids out of private school. Um, basically, he was completely rock bottom, um, mm. all because of that of that joke, which I think is really, really interesting. So I, I don't know what your sort of initial thoughts are about that, what mistake he'd made and why well, it was so powerful. Uh, you know... Um... <laughs> I'm kind of so I'm hearing I'm hearing the story for the first time. Yeah. But my initial reaction to this is the 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 challenge of leadership is you can do so many things right, and sometimes there's just one little thing. It's a big thing, but in our mind, we think it's a little thing, and it creates havoc. Um, it creates a lot of problems. Um, I mean, I can definitely see how that might be taken the wrong way by the listeners, the uh, the audience, his potential customers, but you know, wasn't thought through, I guess. <laughs> Maybe he shot from the hip on that one. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think what it, what it did, um, I think a lot of these things actually reflect something else. So, so one of the things that I'm interested as a, you know, as somebody who studies organizational psychology, I'm really interested in how we make sense of our world, how we mm-hmm. interpret what's going on in front of us. And, um, look at it through whatever lens we already have. Sure. And I think what this did is it is it said something else to people. So it wasn't just that he thought some of his products were, were crap. Um, it was what it it was the deeper level that actually it felt I think to his customers that he was laughing at them. That you know he was saying that you're your custom 
is not that important because um, yeah. you'll buy anything. You'll buy any old rubbish, you know. Yeah. Um, and now he he um, it's interesting because a couple of years ago he actually did an interview. So this is thirty years later, and he mm-hmm. does an interview on our Sky TV in in the UK. And again, I'll put the link to that. It's interesting to watch it. So now he's grayer and older, obviously. Sure. Um, since then, he's um, he's managed to start another business and sold it for a few million pounds, and he's he's okay now. But you know, it still hurts him. He says how much it hurts him. Um, it's not water under the bridge for him. It it's still mm-hmm is really painful and he he's very quick to say look it didn't represent a disdain for the customers actually that's not what it meant but of course whether he did or not is is beside the point it's that feeling that he was taking the mickey really out of out of the people that were paying his wages um and i think that's the thing to always remember is that the the way it's interpreted will be different will not necessarily match the way that you think um, you mean it. So I think that there's a kind of lesson there, I think, for leaders. Of course, this was his customers. These were his customers who turned on him, but also the shareholders. And I'm sure his staff were not too pleased as well. Mm -hmm. Lots of them lost their jobs because they they had to close lots of stores. Um, But it's it's not being aware of how other people will perceive what you're saying. I suppose it, it links back to the communication you yeah. yeah you know i just have this image in my mind i'm i'm, I'm not giggling but i'm just saying you, you're there in the in the restaurant you just gave your girl a, a piece of jewelry yes. from there and then up on the tv comes this spot and she's like what? yeah is, you gave me something get it from sandwich it <laughs> but yeah. it's so true and like i we wear we all wear biased lenses and we see everything in this world like you mentioned from our point yeah. of view and um we almost create an echo chamber this confirmation bias with with how we view things and that's a dangerous place to be because it can put us out of touch with whoever our potential uh listeners are whether it's our customers our our coworkers, our team um it can it can affect any of that yeah, and, and this this happens over and over again. I think you know, and sometimes it gets called being tone deaf. I suppose, and that's mm-hmm. I suppose that's the that's the reality. Um, recently, there was a bit of a thing going around with Gordon Ramsay, um, who I think most people know both sides of the pond, um, the, yeah. the sweary chef mm-hmm. um, from the UK, and um, he was telling his story on on another podcast about how you know when he wanted to borrow some money off his father in law. He, he needed £20,000 for a deposit on his house. You know, he asked his father-in-law and his father-in-law said, well, um, you get rid of that Porsche and um, and then I'll think about it, you know. And he tells this story as a way to help people understand that sometimes you have to um, pay something as a sacrifice, you know. But of course, mm-hmm. for everybody who can't afford a Porsche, um, this sounds incredibly tone deaf, you know. Oh, Paul yeah. Gordon Ramsay yeah. had to sell his Porsche, you know. Um, and again, yeah. it just... It doesn't. It falls like a lead balloon. Oh, it does. So it's really about understanding your your audience. Um, a sidebar on this um, story, Jared. Yeah. Is amusingly, um, he's also known in the UK as the reason why you can say crap on television before oh. the nine o'clock watershed. Because up until that point, the word crap, you just didn't hear it on the news. Um, oh. But at this point, because they quoted him, um, it became a word that you could actually use. Uh, while children were watching, which is kind of funny. <laughs> wow. How far we've come with our censorship. <laughs> I, absolutely. Or lack yeah, thereof. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, so that's my first example. And I think um, a sort of summary of that is about yeah. um, understanding your audience, whether that's your customers or whether that's your team or your manager, and thinking about how it's going to look to them and how it's going to sound to them. I think it's really, really mm-hmm. important. Uh, yeah. Have you got any examples? Yeah, my mine is definitely not humorous. Um, I was thinking about the Chernobyl disaster. Yeah. And, um, you know, fundamentally, there were so many failures that happened. I mean, it was like a perfect storm events yeah. of events that um, led to what happened. And even after it happened, uh, the, uh, the poor leadership continued. And, um, you know, looking back at it in retrospect, I don't think that we could say, well, I'm going to have a nuclear meltdown in my role as a leader or a manager, but you can still see the same 
kind of root causes, I guess you, you could say. And one of the things just uh, looking at it was um, the first and foremost problem was, is that the culture was all wrong there. You know, the focus was on productivity rather than safety. There really wasn't a safety culture. And then, um, you know, people notice things, but they didn't feel like they had the freedom to speak up like, oh, yeah. I'm going to be punished if I bring this to the attention of the higher ups. And um, I mean, you can see that reflected. Uh, I think, uh, again, that that tone deaf uh, attitude, that's definitely not a good leadership quality where you have people that notice little things. They notice trends. They notice, hey, I don't think the customers are happy with this, but you have the uh, higher ups that just say, yeah, we're just going to ignore that. Well, in this case, it led to a cascade of failures that eventually resulted in a reactor melting down. And that's that's scary to think that it really all started with that. And, um, you know, ignoring the expert advice, there were people that were much more qualified from the level of engineering to uh to say hey this is this is bad and um they just ignored it you know and so that that continual ignoring 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 and then and then on top of that uh, all, all my sweet spot training you know training a lot of times gets blamed we need more training <laughs> in yeah. this case it was true there was inadequate training to know how to handle this situation when it does occur or could occur. And it's almost like it was like, hey, we'll roll the dice. We're not worried about that because the likelihood of this happening is, you know, so yeah. small. And yet it happened and nobody knew what to do. So it was, it just built and built the poor communication. Um, you know, you could really look at it as just every area of possibly doing something wrong when it comes to proper leadership. Yeah, they did it. And, um, than the, the cover-up, you know, the lack of transparency. Mm. And, and to me, that's that's where I think about leadership. We're going to make mistakes. There's no such thing as being a perfect leader. But do you take uh, a problem that has occurred and learn from it? Or do you just say, hey, we're just going to bury that and keep doing things the way we were doing it? Because it'll just come back again. And um, I think that's that's really a, a good example for anybody seeking leadership or in a leadership position is what do you do when you realize you've uh, mucked it up a little bit, you know, yeah. <laughs> do you, you just go, ah, you know what, let's just keep on going, you know? So that's, that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's a really good example. Um, there was a, I don't know if you've had the dramatization over in the U S of, Chernobyl on Netflix, I think yes. it was very, yes. very good. Um, Great show. Scary, um, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously there's question marks about some of the accuracy, which there always is when things are dramatized. But I think what it does reflect are some very important factors. Um, so I, going back a few years now, I did actually work for a behavioral health and safety company in the North Sea, um, just off the top of the UK there where they drill for oil. And... Um, uh, that was one of the sort of case studies. Um, another one is the shuttle disaster. Well, there's two mm -hmm. of them, obviously. Um, and you know what happened there. Uh, these they often have similar similar factors around uh, these mistakes, and they they tend to be, as you said, um, poor training, people not actually doing the jobs that they are properly trained for. Um, it's interesting about training. Obviously, we're we're two trainers, so okay, we're going to say this. But um, it always amuses me how, when there is a big disaster or there is a big problem that gets in the news, um, the first port of call for the representative who stands in front of the camera is always to say, "Well, we've we've retrained the staff involved, and yes. um, so on, so." On. Um, and I always think that's the only time that training gets given a priority. You know, otherwise, it's always the yeah. first thing to go. When I know. To save money, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not looking uh, forward to like I don't I don't want disasters to occur. No. But it's almost like oh I know I'm getting my call. That's right. <laughs> that's, at that moment, you're suddenly important. Whereas before, you know, oh, we can't really release people for this. It's you know we're too busy and so on. And then all of a sudden. It's all down to training. You know, it's really important. And that reflects, for, to me, one of the big problems in, in industry is that there is a lack of this longer-term thinking, which includes yeah. developing people up to, a, up to a really high level so that they can become expert at their job. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's, that's a common factor, I think, is, is training. Um, you're quite right about 
Um, and sometimes this is down to the processes and systems, and sometimes it's down to the the culture, the behaviors, and the two obviously intersect. But how do how do you create a, a condition or an environment where people can raise their hand and say, there's a problem here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, famously on Toyota lines, anybody can stop the line. You know, yeah. so that anybody can say there's a problem, I'm going to stop it. Um, now, obviously, that potentially can cost you millions, but it's nothing compared to the millions if you let a problem go. So it's it's really about how do we create a situation where people feel comfortable and okay about saying, look, there's a problem here. Yeah. Um, and the management being willing to listen um, and take notice. So, yeah, I think that's that is another common denominator here. Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I was thinking about people are afraid to step forward and try to improvise, I guess, or do something to fix the problem immediately if they don't feel like they're trusted yeah, or uh, maybe they're micromanaged. And so, I mean, you've probably worked with individuals who have been under that umbrella of micromanagement and they're just so checklist oriented that they'll do yeah. only only what you ask and it has to be very specific yeah. and it limits the true potential that that individual has. Um, and I think about if, if uh, these individuals say in Chernobyl or any situation, um, uh, the shuttle disaster, uh, I think about, you mentioned the oil. I thought about the deep horizon problem. Yeah, another good one. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's, there's so many areas where it's like, mm-hmm. man, if people were just given the trust or the, uh, the freedom to make a call as it were, and uh, maybe some of those things could have been prevented. But I think, for me, it's important that even if even if you let somebody make a mistake, don't go back and and and, and hit them pretty hard with like, "Hey, I can't believe you did that, you dummy," <laughs> or whatever, whatever you choose, because now you just went right back to you really didn't give them the freedom or the autonomy to do something. So it's like more of if someone makes a mistake, how detrimental was it? You almost want to say, "Let's learn from it," and then continue to build on their ability to keep moving forward on their own, you know, cause it's so, it's so easy that that control thing you talked about, like uh, it's like, if you see, Oh, they're fixing to make a mistake and you say, well, let them do it. And then don't, don't berate them to the point where now they're just never going to do it again. You know, it almost would be like, Hey, it's okay. Let's learn from this and then give them another opportunity. Then you can start to see them really blossom and uh, go forth. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned this thing about uh, not being afraid to make mistakes, or at least having a uh, an environment where people can make mistakes. I mean, this this can be very challenging. Um, I read a book a few years ago by a writer called Matthew Syed. Um, I think it was called Black Box Thinking. But but basically, he was making the point that if you um, uh, look at the modern air industry, that the um, you know that. Uh, aircraft and uh, aircraft design and uh, and so on and um, there are obviously odd accept- exceptions because when anything happens it's it's huge um mm-hmm. but in terms of the the sheer safety record modern safety record of aircraft it's phenomenal and um part of the reason for that is because there is a an openness to share if there are errors if there are mistakes that is that is open certainly has been um if you compare that to the medical profession, um, that tends to be closed ranks. And because they're terrified of, of being sued, um, nobody wants to actually admit responsibility. And if you can't admit it, if you can't admit you've made a mistake, um, then you're never going to learn from it. And this is one of the real challenges, I think. Yeah, definitely agree with that. It's scary to uh, think about that comparison because there's so many deaths every year from malpractice and yeah. You know, but uh, you'd hear about it if there's going to be a plane crash, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah their, their records are actually mind boggling how, how safe they are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's another difficult thing. But, you know, in a and again, I guess we're, we're all about challenging leadership. And that includes challenging, challenging ourselves mm-hmm. as leaders to create an environment where people feel comfortable to say, look, I've made a mistake here or we have a problem here that, that we need to look at. Um, it's got, you've got to create that, that, those conditions. Otherwise, um, 
you know, you might feel okay because it's amazing how my crew never make any errors. You know, they never make yeah. any mistakes. <laughs> well, they are happening. It's just you don't know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I've got another one that kind of sure. follows on from that quite nicely, actually. And then perhaps we could talk about some of, um, I know you've got a bit of a sort of theoretical um, way of looking at this, which might be quite interesting. Sure. Um, so the, the other one I wanted to mention is, again, it's, it's something that's happening in the UK. It's slightly limited what we can talk about on this because it's actually happening now. It's kind of live. But um, our UK listeners will definitely know what HS2 is. It's high speed two. Basically, this is a, a high speed rail link that was designed. Um, we're going back um, oh, over 10 years, I think, to a time when this was thought about. And in fact, it was probably more than 10 years ago. Basically, this, this is a high speed rail link that would link London to the northern cities so of the uk so one of the problems in the uk is that everything revolves around london um or it seems to there are big cities in the north there's manchester liverpool leeds uh, and so on newcastle and and so on mm-hmm. um and these are important cities but the links to especially going from the southeast which is where london is to the northwest um, manchester liverpool terrible links even the road network is it just takes a long time mm-hmm. and so this this um this idea was to create a, a high speed rail link from london to uh, manchester well first of all to birmingham then to crew manchester leeds um and so it would would create this this these links these better links between these big cities um so that's the that's the sort of background of it. Now this has been going on for years and years and years, and um, they've actually started to to work on it. Um, I was doing a cycle the other day, and I, I rode across a, a, a bridge where they were doing the work on it. It's huge engineering project. So we've already spent billions on this project. There was recently an announcement by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to say that essentially we're cancelling the whole thing, apart from the link from London to Birmingham, mm-hmm. which is, you know, about a hundred mile uh, link. Um, and that will have cost us by the end of it, probably something like 50 billion pounds, which is wow. absolutely massive. And yeah. um, just to give you some idea, um, I've got a, a, a sort of staggering statistic here. So France's latest 203 mile stretch of high speed track which is um, uh, going from Bordeaux um, across the south of the country. That's essentially double the length of London to Birmingham. Mm-hmm. That's going to cost around $12.1 billion. Oh, goodness. Um, ours, if we were to, to do it the, the way that we were going to do it, would have cost $100 billion. Um, so they, they actually have a, um, a sort of figure here that says, so for... Uh, I'm reading a Guardian quote here. A UK government commission study from 2018 found high-speed rail internationally was generally achieved for about £32 million a kilometre on a range of £11 to £79 million a kilometre. Phase 1 of HS2 looks like coming in at around £250 So if you think about that, from 32 million, which is the normal average, we're now ending up spending 250 million per kilometer. Oh, absolutely staggering. I can't even comprehend that. Is it something about you cross the channel and prices go up? No, (laughs) No, I mean, this is all in the UK. So this is this is. They're not going anywhere, other than. <laughs> so, so basically, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct people to the Times of London for this because they've done a fantastic piece of yeah. um, investigative journalism on this. Um, you get to hear recorded conversations of consultants raising issues with their managers, and you get to hear their experiences of being fobbed off, basically, and told not to tell anybody about this it's just absolutely appalling so i do recommend that it's um if you i think everybody in the world can get the um 
the Stories of Our Times podcast. Um, check that one out. It's very, very interesting. But without going into all of the details, I think what comes out of it are, are a few things, again, which you can say are very common in these sorts of problems. Uh, one of them is is what we've already said, is that an unwillingness to face reality, an unwillingness to face the truth. Mm-hmm. They are being told multiple times that there is a problem here. But obviously politics in the big P is, is involved in this because the government has condi- commissioned it. But even in the workplace, there's politics. And I think politics often gets in the way of us being able to say, look, we need to do something about this. This is causing us a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly there was too much political pressure on individuals to actually take notice of the warnings that they were being given here. So yeah, catalog of errors. We'll get to learn more about it. Um, you know, we might even do a bit of a, a specific episode on it, but sure. as an example of how not to do a project, you know, this is a great wow. example. Now we're going to end up with an incredibly expensive um, line from London to Birmingham, which is going to cut about half an hour off people's journeys. And it's cost us billions. Wow. It's shocking, but uh, it's uh, definitely, it happens many times, especially when you have government projects. (laughs) Yes. If it isn't broke, fix it till it is. Well, you know, and, and there's all sorts of egos in there as well. You know, there's this, um, we, we want this to look good. And of course, mm-hmm. everybody wants to an- announce a project, but nobody wants to pay for it. And this is this is always part of the problem. But Yeah, yeah. goodness. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a classic example. And there's many parties involved, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And again, it's a failure of leadership, really, because mm-hmm. no one is really saying, um, okay, let's look this this horrible thing in the eyes and say, right, we're going to do something about this. It's always kicking the can down the road, as they say. Um, we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. And there was an understanding that, you know, the the chickens will come home to roost at some mm-hmm. point. But hopefully by then, either I'll be gone um, or um they'll they'll go ahead anyway because it's too embarrassing to cancel it you know and and so there's that kind of feeling as well so uh, it's it's there's some process stuff there but there's also a lot of psychology i think there that, that causes these things yeah yeah it almost reminds me like in that situation you have so many cooks in the kitchen but uh, yes. who's 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 actually in charge um accountability yeah. and and to me one of the big failures of leadership is when the leaders don't hold themselves accountable. They're always looking for someone else to blame for why they're in the predicament that they're in. And um, I was uh, reading this this book. It's by a couple of Navy SEALs, um, and uh, it's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. Okay. And um, it's interesting because uh, the one gentleman, his name is Jocko. He was uh, serving in, um, in Iraq back in uh, 2003 but he talked about how there was there was many things that happened where it was actually someone else's fault but ultimately the blame rested on his shoulders because he was the leader and um you know how many times i mean even myself i'm like not saying who can i blame for this but you're just like where did we fail when you need to say sometimes where did i fail Mm -hmm. you have to you have to look at yourself first in that leadership position and say you know where can i fix this. But the problem, such that project you mentioned, how do you do that when maybe you do have good intentions, but you're dealing with several other leaders that they're not so good at what they do, you know? So it's, it's tough. Yeah. And the, the other factor there again, which is actually something relevant to all projects is that um, they, there's constant churn in the leadership. So um, mm-hmm. partly because of the political nature of it, you know, you have, you have different transport secretaries, you have different um, politicians all all getting involved in this thing. Um, and every time it changes hands, you know, the, the, the person coming in has to learn what's going on. And, and now that could be an opportunity to take stock and to, to see what's going on, but often that doesn't happen. So you end mm-hmm. up with no consistency. And this is again, why some of the accountability is lost because yeah, nobody really feels it's theirs. You know, it's, it's been passed on from one one person to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that uh, it's interesting 
what you say, I feel like I need to pick up on that because it's really, really interesting point. Um, that this feeling of not taking accountability, and yet we, about half an hour ago, we said, or I said, how important it was to be willing to, you know, um, not beat yourself up so much um, if you make a mistake. And I think it's a really important way of thinking about this. So, um, and in a way, they're two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's important to be able to accept. And I said this to um, someone in my family quite recently who um, she was sort of feeling like she was worried about making mistakes. And I said, look, you are going to make a mistake at Mm -hmm. some point. You are going to do it. And it's going to cost some money Um, and you're going to feel embarrassed and you're going to feel like you could have done something differently. Mm -hmm. So expect that, but it's not the end of the world. You know, it is part of what happens in any project or in any business. Do your best. But if you know that, then I think that helps you to accept the fact that, yeah, I did make a mistake here Mm -hmm. and I, I, I will take accountability for it and I will learn from it. I think for those of us who who feel like making a mistake is completely anathema, um, you're not going to take accountability because you're not willing to accept that mm-hmm. you have made an error. So I think the, these two things actually come together. Yeah, willingness to take accountability. Yes, we we do make mistakes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take that um, and learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's such a it's such a delicate balance. Yeah, because because we don't want to go the uh, the the one one way where we just get held down like an anchor because of our constant failures when that's not really the case. But um, I think about how if you are able to admit, hey, I messed this up or I made a mistake and um, you're able to express that to those that you're leading. Well, generally, that's going to humanize you. And now they're going to be willing, they're not going to be afraid to speak up when they see something or they've messed something up. I know um, from our backgrounds, we we definitely know about hiding mistakes or not being unwilling, you know, just, we can't talk about that. And, um, you know, you think about that just creates far reaching negative effects. Um, So, so that, that uh, no, nobody made a mistake. Everything's fine. Uh, The emperor's new clothes kind of viewpoint. (laughs) And then you, you know, you can see, you can see where that, that goes down a road. That's not good. Absolutely. Um, So you, you, uh, before we started, you mentioned that there was a a kind of model that you thought was quite useful for this sort of topic. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, there, there's a, a book it's by an author, Kim Scott, and it's called radical candor be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. And um, I, I thought it was interesting because of the fact that it really, it uh, breaks down two sides of the coin, if you want to call that. It's called um, caring personally, but also um, being able to challenge directly. And, uh, you know, you think about leaders, generally people are known as either one way or the other. It's like, they're the tyrannical boss that their word is final. And then you've got the other ones that are, oh, they're so caring and kind. And, and uh, basically her idea is, is that you got to have a little bit of both, but it has to be from a genuine position. Um, and so she basically talked about there's, uh, I guess you call it the radical candor quadrants. So there's four areas if you wanted to imagine up on a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is called radical candor. And um, for that one, you're actually, you care about the person, you also challenge them. Um, so there, there's that genuineness to it. So that's like the, uh, that's the spot where you want to operate in. And uh, I hope, I hope my, uh, I've got my mirror image on my uh, video. I don't know what's going to look like. You like, you keep pointing to the same square, Jared. No, <laughs> but bear with me. Um, but, uh, but, but opposed to that is that you can have what they call it ruinous empathy. And that really, um, a situation where you care about the person, but you do so to the point where you care so much, you don't, you don't challenge them. You don't try to correct their mistakes. So that's like really bad. That's actually just as detrimental as somebody that's that iron fisted ruler. Um, And then somewhere in between there, you have what's called the quadrant of manipulative insincerity. And um, I thought that one was an interesting way to call it. Um, They, they don't, 
they don't care and they don't challenge you. <laughs> it's, it's like another, another really bad, uh, bad way of doing things. And then, and then you've got the, uh, the other one called obnoxious aggression. And for the obnoxious aggression, I love how she calls these things. It's like, I need to, I need to draw this up on the whiteboard when I, when I'm at work, but, um, they basically provide, they provide feedback without any care about the person. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, I think that if you take a little bit from each one of these quadrants, you come up with, I need to be able to challenge my people that I'm leading, but I need to do so tempering it with understanding how they're viewing the information and what situation they are in. And this, this one size fits all leadership is going to fail a lot of times. You have to be able to address individuals based on who they are. And the challenge with that is, is that as you have a larger group of people to lead, you have to be able to delegate some of that leadership down so that they can basically uh, emulate what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that book out. We'll put the again, we'll put the link to that book on the the show notes if people want to um, follow that up. Um, yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, one of the things that that we do on on our training courses is try to get leaders to think about what outcome they want from any interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is particularly around, I suppose, a one-to-one interaction. So I, I always say to people, you know, um, if you're trying to improve somebody's performance, let's say, as an example, somebody's performance isn't reaching the standard that you would like it to. Um, one thing you can do, obviously you can ignore it. Um, another thing you can do is you can go and give them a great telling off um, that might make you feel better or it might it might be a, a release of your frustration and anger. But before you have a talk to them, I would say, um, what do you want out of that conversation? And write that write those things down. So, you know, mm-hmm. I want them to understand what the issues are, okay? I want them to, um, I want us to have a plan for how they're going to improve. Okay, great. What else do you want? Um, or what else don't you want? Well, I want to be able to still maintain a good working relationship with them because we have to work together. Okay, that's another thing then. And then if you clear about all those outcomes and that will determine how you then approach it. And too often we we steam in because we're frustrated and angry. And actually the only thing that we're getting as an outcome there is a release of our frustration. So yeah, I'm always keen to say, just think before you start down that road, before you start saying anything, what outcome do you want? And then the next words that are about to come out of my mouth, are those going to help me deliver that or not? Um, And that's similar. I think that, you know, that sits in one of those quadrants, I'm sure. Yeah. Great, great points. Yeah, no, I, I um, it, it's it's such a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, you know, and, and um, I think back to your your original story with the uh, jeweler, the uh, the fact that you have you have all these great ideas, um, you have this great model, and then you mess it up, you know. Yeah, it, it's a good point because one of the you know when you listen to that speech, he talks about, you know, before we came along, um if you looked at a, a jeweler's window, you couldn't see any prices. There were no prices on anything. He said, but we knew that our customers wanted to see prices on things before they went in the shop. Um, in, in back in those days, if you went in, the, the jeweler would lock the door behind you. Um, he said, but we have the open door. In fact, now we don't have doors. And in fact, that is how most jewelers operate now that there, there aren't any doors. Um, yeah. Obviously, they have to think about security, mm-hmm. but that's done in a different way. So these were all great innovations. And, and obviously, making jewelry during a recession that people could actually buy was very, very sensible. So, yeah, it did so many great things. Um, and yes, as you said, uh, just just sort of blew it all because of that mistake. I'm glad he didn't have the, the motto, we have jewelry that no one wants to steal. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, right. uh, I'd be a terrible, terrible jeweler too. I would have, I would have yeah. been sacked too. <laughs> oh. Cool. Well, I think we're we're probably there, aren't we? Um, yeah. I, I was going to briefly mention Enron. Now, um, I think everybody's podcast and their daughter's podcasts have talked about Enron. Um, sure. It does follow some similar um, patterns, but I suppose the one thing I will will say about Enron. Um, 
which is perhaps a bit different, is the link to our first episode, which is about charisma. Mm -hmm. Um, Because um, there's quite an interesting link that an academic called Dennis Turish draws between transformational charismatic leadership and what happened in Enron, particularly in terms of the culture of the place, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe we'll talk about that another time. But I think it's quite interesting how they created this environment where it was all about the leadership. People were love bombed to start with. It was all about, come on, join us. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And then they were told that they were no good. They had this um, rank and yank system, which I think is quite interesting where they would rank everybody in three tiers. The top tier would be given lots of bonuses. The middle tier would be, told they need to keep going and sort of helped a bit. And the bottom tier basically would pull your socks up or you're gone, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would be the ones that would be yanked. And so this created a a culture of, again, fear, not helping each other, not admitting if you're wrong. So again, I think this this echoes a lot of what we've already said. But yeah, interesting topic. We'll perhaps um, cover that another day. Yeah, definitely a good one to discuss further. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jared. Um, that's been yeah. really, really interesting. So, listeners, this is the third of our podcasts. Um, in the time that we've been doing this, I've actually created an Instagram page. So, um, join us on Instagram. The handle is called Leadership Pod. So, yeah. join us on there. And um, obviously, very early days, we've got nobody following us yet. So, join us on there, and we'll we'll build up a bit of a following, and we'll put some thoughts upon that as we as we sort of carry on with this podcast so uh, don't forget to join us again subscribe if you're on youtube follow if you're on apple podcasts or do whatever you have to do to make sure that you catch us again thank you very much everybody have a good one